This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Dr. Jose Luis Stevens. Jose is an international lecturer, teacher, psychologist, licensed clinical social worker, and author of 18 books. He's on the board of the Society of Shamanic Practitioners and is the co-founder of the Power Path School of Shamanism and the Center for Shamanic Education and Exchange. With Sounds True, Jose has written a new book called Encounters with Power, Adventures and Misadventures on the Shamanic Path of Healing. Jose is also a teacher in Sounds True's ongoing online subscription community called A Year of Ceremony. This is a community in which participants from all over the world gather for full moon ceremonies designed to facilitate both personal and collective healing. If you're interested to learn more about A Year of Ceremony, please visit SoundsTrue.com. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Jose Luis Stevens and I spoke about Jose's definition of power and the importance on the shamanic path of understanding power, acquiring it, storing it, and expressing it and how the price of power is your comfort zone. Jose also shared with us stories of initiation and lessons learned from his new book, Encounters with Power, and how he resolved for himself the question of free will versus fate. Finally, Jose and I talked about our current environmental crisis and how to take an empowered stance in the face of current events. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jose Luis Stevens. Jose, I know you're a ceremonial leader among other shamanic tasks that you perform, and a conversation isn't exactly a ceremony, but to me, a conversation with a lot of intention does have a sacredness to it. And I'm so looking forward here to having this sacred conversation with you. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to begin right here at the beginning with some type of invocation that really brings in a blessing power for the conversation we're about to have. Sure. That sounds wonderful. So just give me a a moment here to make that little transition to sacred space. And at this time, I call upon all the helping spirits to witness this conversation and to support it in any way that's helpful, to add light to it, to to bring power to it, and to 
help it to extend out to all those people that may need to, in some way, hear the information of this conversation. And we uh, give thanks for all the spirits uh, who are helping and uh, spirits of the four directions, the east, the south, the west, and the north, and the sky above and the earth below, and the spirits of this planet. And so I think we're ready to go here. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, interestingly, in this opening invocation, you brought up two things that I actually really want to talk to you about. One is you talked about bringing in light, and there's a line from your new book, Encounters with Power, that I scribbled, which is, light is a shaman's best friend. And I thought, (laughs) I want to know more about that. Yeah. Well, um, sometimes these things are not so easy to talk about because you have to to find words to describe these things, and they don't lend themselves too well to words, but I'll do my best. And uh, so light is what we're made of. Um, uh, and and therefore, uh, light is uh, is fundamental. It's the most fundamental thing there is. And uh, we this book is focusing on uh, encounters with power, and power uh, is uh, supported by by light. Now, yes, there are th- there are those that there are many stories about those that use power from the dark side. But I don't consider that to be real power. I consider that to be like parlor tricks. Sure, you can do things with darkness, but it's not real power. It, it, it's not sustainable. It doesn't carry you, you through to your essence. To the, 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 the greatest powers are, are in light. Uh, you know, light is where we came from. Light is where we're going. Light is where we are. We just we just uh, forgot, and so we sometimes are dis- feeling disconnected from the light all around us. And and that's what part of the human experience is is to is the forgetting for a while, and then of course finding our way back, which is the hero's journey, and discovering that oh, it was light all along. I just closed my eyes for a while. So those are a few things I can say about shamanic power of light. Yeah. What about someone in this moment who says, you know, this sounds good, light's fundamental, we're made of light right here. How could you point them to experiencing that in some way? Well, uh, you, you can look outside and you can see light through your eyes, but if somebody flips off the lights, it's dark. But if you close your eyes, and look within and recall just about anything, it's going to have, there's going to be light. Uh, lighting up your memories, lighting up your visions, lighting up your dreams at night. Uh, those, those don't happen in blackness. There's, there's light within, and it's always there. All you, every time you close your eyes and you begin to recall something, it's automatic. There's light there. So uh, that's something you can do at any moment. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Just close your eyes and recall something. Mm-hmm. Okay, now the second word which you mentioned is power. And you're saying that our power is actually supported by light. And I want to read a quote, Jose, that's right from the introduction of Encounters with Power. And here it is. Shamanically speaking, life is all about becoming more powerful, learning to acquire power, store it, seal it in, and express it when needed. So let's just really break this down and help me here at the beginning how you define power. Okay, that's that's good. And uh, uh, power, in, and this is, of course, my definition. Everybody might not agree. But in my understanding, power is capacity. It's, it's, um, it's like, let's say you're going to take a trip in your car. And uh, the power you're going to use is, say, the gasoline. And so it gives you the capacity to go wherever you want to go, okay, within the distance that you can. And so it, it's, the, the power is not necessarily, uh, let's put it this way, the power is in your capacity to do things. So then you may do this or you may do that or you may do something else with it. But where I'm focusing on is the is the potential that it allows you to have. If if you have no capacity, if your heart is closed, if your mind is closed, and you've shut down your capacity to like a thimble, well, you're just not going to have much power to do much with your life. And that's very unfortunate, and it's too often the case with people. So that's why thousands of years ago, people on the shamanic path discovered the importance of, of um, becoming powerful, to accumulate power. And where did they find power? They found power all around them. They found power in the waterfalls, in the rivers, in the waves of the ocean, and the, the winds blowing through, and the, the animals moving through, and, and the sun beaming down, and power was in their environment. And really all they had to do was open up to it. All they had to do was go and receive it. So it's, it's, it's actually a very simple thing. And then, of course, through that, that accumulated power, then as one goes through their life, they have it available at their fingertips and can dip into it as needed. And, of course, they don't want to fritter it away. They don't want to have it leak out like a hole in your bucket. They, that's why it's important to have a storehouse of power, one that, you know, like a battery pack. It, it goes with you, and it's available at any moment because you never know when you're going to suddenly need that little extra dose of power. Mm-hmm. And some of my stories actually illustrate that, that, you know, in, in, spontaneous events happen where sometimes, yeah, you better have some power. Now, your book, Encounters with Power, tells all kinds of remarkable stories. And right here, you're pointing us to the fact that the book talks some about the ability to store 
power and how you need to have it when necessary. Can you point to a story in the book that illustrates that? Oh, just about all of them do. Um, let's see. There's, um, yeah, there's a story that one of my favorite stories, it's right up pretty close to the front of the book. It's called Lost in Mexico. And it's about a, a trip a number of years ago. I go to Mexico a lot, you know, on pilgrimage. So it was one of the many trips going down to Mexico. And um, I won't go into all the details of the story here, but the the upshot of it was that uh, we ran out of gas in the desert. And uh, I went out to hitchhike to get some more gas and uh, entered into a grand adventure at that at that time, when I went over to the side of the road and hitchhiked and got picked up by another car and was taken to a, a town nearby where I got some gas and I brought it back to where the, I had left the car and my family and the car was gone and my family were gone. And suddenly I was in Mexico with none of my belongings, with Fortunately, I had my wallet with me with a little money in it, very little money, and I, and I fortunately, fortunately had my passport with me. And from that point on, I had the grand adventure of getting out of Mexico and getting all the way back to my home in Santa Fe with um, just pennies to spare and with uh, shorts on and a T-shirt on in November. So... Uh, you know, that can happen to anyone at any time. And so I had to rely on what power I had already accumulated because, you know, um, uh, I had limited resources. I didn't have the power of um, a bunch of cash in my wallet. I I didn't have some of the things that we think of as what we need. All I had was my wits, and um, I had some shamanic power. And it, it uh, was a, a grand adventure. It was quite frightening and quite um, s- stressful in certain ways, but very exciting in other ways. And I did make it all the way home um, in a snowstorm, uh, only to be greeted by my family back at home. When you say you had shamanic power, how did you draw on that in this story? What did you have to do? Well, uh, among uh, different types of power was the power of my allies. So I had to immediately contact my allies and ask them for help and ask them for support. Now, if I hadn't cultivated those relationships, maybe that wouldn't have worked out so well. Now, you're not talking here about someone that, like, you know, Western Union sent you uh, some <laughs> cash or something. That's not the kind of allies you're talking about. No, I'm talking about my power animals and my um, uh, teachers that are on the other side, some of my ancestors, you could say, and um, some of the plant medicines that uh, are my allies. I, I, had, I had to dip in and, and call them up and ask them for support and ask them for advice as I went along, uh, checking in with them. Okay, now, what's the best thing to do here? You know, how, how do I handle this? And I, I, they, they would give me very clear 
guidance. And so that's a kind of power that you can, you can develop with practice. And then there was, of course, just my vitality level, which I, I had to sustain because I had been up all night for a couple nights in a row in down deeper in Mexico where we were doing some peyote ceremonies. And uh, so it was, you know, pretty tired and uh, I had had nothing to eat and um, I didn't really have the money to get anything to eat. <laughs> so I, you know, I had to find some vitality, which I did. And the, the, so there's, there's a variety of different uh, uh, kinds of power that, that I had to rely on. Mm-hmm. I want to talk some about what the obstacles might be for people in becoming more powerful in their life. Because I think this idea, it's very enticing. I'd like to be more powerful. I'd like to be more resourceful. I'd like to have more energy. I'd like to be able to call on the power of allies. So in this process of acquiring more power, what do you see as the biggest obstacles? Uh, Well, actually, there's a number of them. One is, of course, fear. Fear is one of the biggest obstacles that almost everybody runs into right away. It's like, oh, no, that's the first thing out of people's mouths. Oh, no, when something spontaneous happens, when something goes unplanned, and all of a sudden there you are, you're faced with, oh, a challenge. I've got to get myself through this. Big fear comes up. And it's the the fear that um, perhaps there's no solution. There's a fear that something bad is going to happen to me and I'm going to suffer. There's a fear of just a general unknown and um, uh, being out of control, blah, blah, blah. We all all have at some level those kind of fears. And those can be seriously debilitating. Those can paralyze us. And uh, you can see that those begin to arise because you get the physiological responses, your heart starts beating, your mouth gets dry. And then at that point, there's a choice. There's a choice to let it take over and sit down on a curb and cry and feel sorry for yourself, which doesn't really do any good. Or you can go, I've been here before. Uh, this is an initiation I'm in. This is a this was meant to happen. This is not accidental. And I have the resources to get through this. And I've got all kinds of access to guidance and helpers. And I've got prayer I can rely on. I've got, you know, my battery pack that I've been building for a long time that will sustain me. So I'm going to be okay here. And that's absolutely a key thing is is to be able to make a new choice around the challenge that fear is bringing up into the moment. So that's one one of the first challenges that takes place. And uh, I would say that that most challenges along the way, you can change the props, you can change the scenery, you can change the the event. But when it comes down to it, fear is always going to show up. It's always going to be a character, a part of the play, okay? It's going to be like an adversary. And uh, so that 
you get repeated opportunities to deal with fear. Can you share with us a story from your own life, perhaps something you wrote about in Encounters with Power, where you had to confront one of your own fears as a test and what that was like? You use this framework of being tested to see if we're ready for more power in our yeah. life. Yeah. Well, um, I'm recalling, <clears throat> just off the top of my head, I'm recalling an incident. This is a story that didn't make it into the book. I had to ax it because the book was getting too long. So I was in Ecuador. I was with my daughter, Anna. We were traveling down deep in, uh, near the jungle area. And um, I, I had some cash along with me. It was about $800 in cash, which I had picked up in Peru from another event. And I didn't really want to be carrying it, but there was no choice. I, it was the only way to uh, carry this money. And um, uh, we, we got on a bus, and uh, there's, there's a kind of attendant that comes down the aisle and helps, you get your tickets and all that stuff. And he said, oh, you, can, you cannot uh, hold that backpack in your lap. You have to put it up above uh, the seat. And it sounded a little strange to me, but I, you know, I was trying to be compliant. So I, uh, I, I put my backpack up there and then, uh, he kind of like shuffled around and pushed it into place. And then, um, he went away and, uh, the bus started on its way. And, uh, when I got to my destination, I pulled out my backpack and I looked inside and the money was gone. It was all gone. And that was the money that we were using to travel with. So instantly I was just like shocked and horrified and beset with, well, a variety of emotions, fear and anger and upset of every kind you can imagine. But it was a big load of fear there because I was like, what am I going to do? My money's gone, and I don't know what we're going to do here to uh, replace it, um, blah, blah, blah. We're, we're down in a pretty um, rural area of Ecuador. We're not near any big cities, and you know. So um, I was faced with one of the, the bigger... Um, episodes of fear that I can remember. And it was everything I could do to uh, tackle that, to, to, to find a calmness within me. Uh, I'd find a calmness for a few minutes, and then the fear would come back. And then I'd find a calmness, and then the fear would come back. So I had to use every resource that I knew, called in all my helping spirits, called in my allies, um, uh, looked at the whole thing and realized that I was in a initiation and that, uh, that so I was being challenged and that everything would be okay. And after many, many hours of struggle, internal struggle with myself, I finally managed to get onto the other side of my own fear and found a serenity 
found a kind of tranquility. And of course, like all these events and episodes, um, there there were alternatives, and I talked it over with my daughter Anna, and she had some ideas of what we could do, and we figured out a plan so that we could uh, continue our trip and uh, manage to get some money wired from home and all of that. So it worked out, but it was a huge struggle. And I realized that it was um, that this journey, this travel, was what I call a bid for power. So we all do bids for power. We all do things that are a little challenging at times in our life. Sometimes they're bigger bids for power, like we decide to get married or we decide to have a child or we decide to go to school or take on a a bigger responsibility of some kind. That's a bid for power. And you know if you're going to bid for power, you're going to get tested for sure. So if you're you're thinking you're not going to run into a test here and there, you're fooling yourself. So I had to remind myself of all this. I had to go back over all that because shamanically I knew that stuff. But in a crisis, somehow it's easy for all that stuff to go right out the window. It's like, wait a minute, where are all my resources? I completely forgot what my resources are. And so you have to little by little bring them back and and recall, yes, I have resources. I know what I'm doing. There's another way to perceive this. Uh, one of the fundamental principles of, of shamanism is not to uh, believe in appearances. Now, one of the things I'd love you to clarify is you said getting married even is a bid for power. How is that a bid for power? Well, it's a bid for power because you're entering into, first of all, a new phase of your life. You're entering, it's going to change your life dramatically. It's going to bring in huge challenges of living with this person, getting along with this person, um, communicating with this person well, overcoming your differences. Uh, it's huge. And so it's, it's taking a step and saying, I'm, I'm going to take on this huge new responsibility and because I want to. And because I think I'm ready for it in my life. And um, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. I believe I can do this. It's a bid for power. Mm -hmm. Because through the relationship, you're going to become more powerful than as if you just remained alone. Because it's easy to remain alone in some ways as opposed to being in a relationship. That's mm-hmm. what's really hard. Mm-hmm. It seems that just this idea of reframing difficult experiences as I'm being tested, I'm not exactly sure who's testing us, but you could answer that in a moment, but the idea that we're being tested as a reframe to just I'm struggling, this is really difficult, this stinks, that reframe is very, dare I use the word, powerful. Yes, it is. Uh, most therapists know that. I'm trained as a psychotherapist, so I'm I'm used to the whole reframe idea, but it's also a major, major component of a shamanic approach to life. It's, it's really all about reframing. It's 
you know, because one can lead you, if you don't reframe, you're led right into complaining, whining, martyrdom, feeling sorry for yourself, feeling like a victim. All those are way, dis, very disempowering ways of approaching the situation. Reframing it allows you to go, hey, maybe this is part of the plan. Maybe this was like always meant to be. And now here it is. Am I up for it? I think I am because it wouldn't have shown up unless I was ready for this. Well, that's a big reframe. Mm -hmm. And that takes you in an entirely different direction. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Jose, one of the things I really want to talk with you about is drawing on our power, if you will, when it comes to the collective state of the world and the environmental crisis and species extinction. And I'm bringing this up at this point in our conversation because I think this is an area where a lot of us could use some help reframing our current global crisis and feeling empowered and not simply feeling quite despairing and at a loss. So help me see this, if you will, from an empowering shamanic viewpoint. Well, in in order to, that's a great question and it's very timely. And I've actually been putting a lot of thought into this recently. Uh, In order to respond to it, I'm going to have to sort of blow up my own experience into the collective experience. So collectively, as a human race, we are at a, from, and this is from my perspective, we are at an initiatory time. We're going from uh, a child stage into an adolescent stage. And so we're, we're actually going through puberty as a human race. And as we know, puberty from each of our experiences is pretty challenging. It's it's a hard transition. It's never easy. Most of us wouldn't repeat it if we, you know, uh, had our choice to go back there. We probably wouldn't go back to that time in our lives to repeat. And so imagine that the whole human race is going into puberty right now. And with it, there's intense hormones, there's intense uh, emotional response, reactivity, There's um, great polarization as people fall into different camps and have very different points of view and all that stuff. Um, So uh, think of it, the the conflicts that go on, the huge emotional conflicts that go on in an adolescent, think of that going on on a species-wide level. And of course, in our movie, and I like to think of this as a virtual reality movie, is that there, you know, we're on the heroic journey. And as we know, 
a really good movie has its all is lost moments. You know, that's what makes it a really good movie. What's really fun about gambling is that you could lose everything. So what's really fun about a great movie is that it has moments when you think, oh, the hero is finished, the heroine is going to die, they're, they have no more resources, they're being crushed by the villain. And then, of course, you know, it, it works out. And then we celebrate with them. That's the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell so well described. And we're on that hero's journey, that heroine's journey, as a species. And this is one of those, oh my God, all is lost moments. Like, what if we fail? What if we lose this planet? What if all is lost? And, and that makes it incredibly exciting. That's from another point of view. I, some people might not think of it that way, but that's how I'm thinking of it. And so what are we going to do with this? How are we going to get ourselves through this series of challenges? Well, an initiation, it, this is a bid for power on the species level. The human race is doing a bid for power. Can we get through this? Can we move into a time of great cooperation, a golden age, so to speak, can we, can we, that which we've always hoped for, can we get there even though we're faced with something that looks like the opposite? And again, there's that principle, never believe in appearances. So one of the, the challenges for me, as I read the headlines every day, they get more discouraging every day, and I keep repeating the phrase, never believe in appearances. This is what it looks like, but that's not how it actually is. Okay, so so this is a bid for power, and uh, it's going to bring up our most our deepest resources. Uh, it, it's going to call upon um, uh, everything that we know we have to to handle this transition. And um, do I believe we're going to do it? Absolutely. Because that's the nature of the hero's journey. Uh, I have no question that this, uh, this does not end in massive failure because that goes against... We started out this conversation talking about the light. And in the end, there is only light. So how could it end any other way? So that's what keeps me moving forward, reframing, 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 and seeing this all as a grand passion play that has such a sense or feeling of realness to it. You know, a really good movie, you forget that it's a movie. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're in. Now, let's say uh, somebody's listening, Jose, and they're like, but, you know, I movies are things I go to the movie theater and watch. The, you know, this is my life. I don't experience it like a movie. I'm not even 100% sure I know what Jose means by never believe appearances. Can you help that person? Well, um, it takes, it's a leap here. It's a leap because we're, we're trained through our educational system and through our conditioning to believe that this life that we seem to be living is real, that it's the only game in town. And it's actually not the only game in town. 
in fact, you know, I don't, I'm not going to get into it here, but from quantum physics, we're beginning to understand that there's many, many, many parallels, that the universe has endless parallels, and they're all playing out. And this is only one parallel. There are parallel stories going on, parallel Earths, parallel experiences that have slight differences, and they may have a slightly different outcome. And that through our choices, we're always jumping parallels. And this is a topic, again, that's too complex to actually get into. But in other words, what I'm really saying here is that we have choice. We always have choices. We're never ramrodded into a victim's place, even though it might look like that. It's always, it comes, we, we have choice at the deepest levels, at the level of, you could say, our essence or our core self. Some people call that soul. And that's where the choices come from. And we can choose anything we want to. And so, um, uh, you know, I might say that to somebody, but they won't necessarily believe me because of their conditioning and what they actually believe is the, 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 one, the one and only chance we have and we're failing. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the power of choice and that idea, I think I have a sense of that, but I want to make sure that we don't skip over the parallel earths and the idea that this is not just from quantum physics, but it sounds to me, Jose, that in your inner experience, this idea that there are these different parallel universes happening simultaneously is something that you have seen, if you will. So tell me what you see in the inside of your experience about parallel Earths, parallel lives. Well, there's one described by the um, Mayans very well uh, the, the, in their calendar system. They have 17 calendars, so there was only one that actually came to an end in 2012, um, they've described a cycle uh, that they call cartoons. They're 20-year periods that all add up to uh, a bigger cycle of 200 and approximately 60 years. And um, uh, by, by looking at this cycle, you can, you can see certain patterns that repeat themselves and repeat themselves and repeat themselves. And there is um, a, a way that you can continue to look at patterns into the future. And so there's, uh, there's patterns that um, we've seen in the past, like there was the period when this country first began that was the American Revolution, and a similar time frame, there was a French Revolution, and there was, there was a time of great revolution, and then there was a time, and that was a time of great polarization where the there were the haves and the have-nots and extremes and in society and all that. And then there was these revolutionary periods. And then there was, following that, uh, a restructuring. And then following that was a renaissance. And if you go back in history, according, again, to the, the Mayan approach, you can see this pattern playing out over and over and over again uh, throughout thousands of years. And you can see in different parts of the world where there was the same process of polarization and extremes and then revolution and then restructuring and then renaissance, always followed by renaissance. And so 
again, according to this cartoon calendar, we're in the period now of extreme polarization. That's that's being repeated, and the um, the oppression of that. The, you know, it's something similar that the French experienced uh, before the French Revolution with the royalty that had it all, and the rest of the people with very little resources and uh, the oppression that was going on. We we have that. And then what follows that is a, a, a period of um, conflict and, and, and fighting that off, shrugging that off. You have uh, a type of revolution. The revolutions of the past have mostly been bloody, but there's always the possibility of a revolution that might be a paradigm shift or an ideological revolution. Uh, those are always choices that we have. And then it comes a period of restructuring, and then comes a period of renaissance. So according to that cycle or that pattern, renaissance is inevitable, and it's going to follow an extremely turbulent period where pretty much it's a wrecking zone. That's how most revolutions are. They pretty much tear down and rebuild, and um, that I, I choose to look at that as a as a parallel, you know, uh, that we could follow, and and it's a very common and tip, uh, parallel on this planet. We we do that regularly, and so um, I have no doubt that that's what we've entered into is a construction zone. We're in a construction zone. The old building is, is coming down. Everything that's not sustainable is coming apart. And as we know from construction zones, it's, it's a mess. There's dust, there's trucks, there's cranes, there's lots of noise, it's chaos. And then little by little, that gets cleared away and a foundation is built, and then another building rises. And um, it's, it's all part of a process. And we're, we've just entered that process, and so it's pretty messy. But that's necessary. It's required. You, you know, some things have to go away before some things can come in that are new. Now, Jose, I understand that as a pattern. I don't understand, though, why you're referring to that as a parallel. There are, there are many, let's put it this way, different parallels hold different cycles. And uh, so this parallel doesn't, uh, let me say it differently, other parallels don't necessarily have the same cycle. Okay. And, and these parallels that we're in that are close to us, we, we have this cycle. It's been going on for a long time. So it's very probable that this cycle will continue and that we'll just move slightly to a parallel where it works out, you know, more according to what we had in mind. I'm uh, focusing on this point because I know that you're part of Sounds True's ongoing Year of Ceremony program, which yeah. is an online membership subscription site where at each of the full moon, different shamanic teachers come on and lead people in a collective ceremony. And that next year, as the Year of Ceremony continues, you and your wife... Lena 
we'll be offering a ceremony that's on releasing our past and dreaming our global future. And that as part of that ceremony, you're going to help us intentionally shift to a new parallel. And yeah. that's why I'm trying to understand what that actually means and how a ceremony can help us shift to a new parallel. So that's what I'm digging for here in our conversation. Okay, a ceremony is a, is a sacred space. And sacred space includes the temporary suspension of time as we know it. It's like stopping the clock and opening a space up for redeciding, rechoosing. That's why uh, healing, uh, the ceremonies that are dedicated to healing, uh, sometimes miracles happen. Sometimes a person is completely healed of something that was uh, going to kill them. It could, it could have been cancer or something like that. And we know that there are healing ceremonies where those things take place. It's because time is suspended. And in that sacred space, there can be re-choosing, a new dream, a re-intending, a re-choosing. So, um, so that's what we have in mind for that particular ceremony, is that it, you know, it can be done in a conscious way and collectively by a great number of people who carry with them a great momentum. And, uh, you know, I truly believe uh, Margaret Mead's um, uh, statement that it, you know, world change often takes place because of just a small handful of people working together with a clear vision decided to proceed and, and go ahead. I'm not paraphrasing her. I'm, I'm, I'm more or less stating what she she said. That sometimes it, it doesn't have to be, you know, a huge number of people. It can be a relatively small group of people. And in our world, with 7 billion people and counting, uh, a small group of people might be, you know, 500,000. That's mm -hmm. a small group of people. But it's enough to choose a, an entirely new direction for the whole planet. Now, as part of this ceremony that you'll be leading people through as part of a year of ceremony, you're going to take people through an experience that you call targeting the debt. And can you explain to me what that is, that aspect of your work? Yeah. Um, we all carry debt. Now, we used to, we're used to thinking of debt as um, mostly money. You know, we owe somebody money. We, we borrowed some money, and we have to pay it back. We owe mortgages, things like that. That's what most people think of. But there's actually many types of debt. Debt is baggage. It's, it's stuff that we've, it's unfinished business that we've carried from the past. Now, the past may include past lives. It may include earlier in this life. It's, it's baggage. And those are what we're calling our debts. And to the degree that we carry debt, it can be, as we all know, too much debt can paralyze you. Too much debt can feel like, I can't, I can't lift these bags anymore. I've, I'm stopped in my tracks. I can't move forward. I've got too much debt. I'm stuck. I don't know how to pay it off. I'm screwed. And unfortunately, too many of us end up in, in, in that, with that kind of feeling. And so it's, 
in many cases, in, in order to allow somebody to proceed forward, there has to be a forgiveness of debt, regardless of who does the forgiving. Sometimes it can be, you know, the lender, it can be a bank, it can be... We, we do that sometimes with countries that run out of money and they owe huge debt and they're going to go bankrupt and and we forgive them part of their debt or all their debt so they can move forward. And often the lender, often the person that is holding the 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 debt is the is ourselves. We're holding our own feet to the fire emotionally speaking. And so what's what's called for there is forgiveness. In other words, we have to forgive ourselves our debt. We're never going to pay it all off. Just like our national debt, you know, it's too much. It's like there has to be some forgiveness along the way. There, and, and forgive comes from a, a Scottish term that, that involved fishing, where the fishing boats would go out into the North Atlantic and they would be fishing and filling their boats with fish, and then one of them would yell out, for sure, for sure, give way, give way. And the other boats would move away, and that boat would go to shore and unload its fish. And so that's the actually the origin of the, the term forgive. For actually was then used in Scottish golf. It meant the ball is coming, give way, step back. So when we forgive, we're, we're allowing ourselves the freedom to move forward again and everybody step back and let me be free once again. That's really what the term forgive means. And so when we forgive a debt, when we forgive other people, when we forgive ourselves, we're allowing ourselves to proceed once again forward toward our goals. Jose, could you give me an example of how this letting go of a debt occurred in your own life, in your own shamanic life, if you will, and how more power came as a result? Oh, I have a number of them. Um, there was uh, somebody in a, another country that um, uh, threw a book deal that didn't go well owed me a tremendous amount of money. And um, uh, he, he just didn't handle things right. He was the publisher of a book that I published in a different language, actually. It was translated into another language. And um, he, w he basically went um, belly up, and he, he could not um, pay me what he owed me for publishing this book. And um, I had different recourses. You know, I could have gone the legal route, and I could have, you know, held him to it and all that. But I realized that that was going to be a huge burden for him and a huge burden for me. And I didn't, oh, didn't want to spend years carrying around the feeling, uh, uh, you know, that he owed me. And so basically what I decided to do is just forgive the entire debt and just say, forget about it. Let's just, let's just move on. And I did that. And it was hard for me to get there because it involved quite a sum of money. But, you know, it felt 
fabulous. It Not only did it feel great to that person, but it felt wonderful to me. I felt like this huge burden had lifted off my own shoulders. It was not only his debt, it was mine too, emotionally. And with a simple, actually, choice to to forgive the debt, we were both unburdened. And it really has never bothered me since. Mm-hmm. There's a quote that I really liked from your new book, Encounters with Power. You write, you do not become more powerful by remaining in your comfort zone. The price of power is your own comfort. Yeah, uh, it's true. You, if you want to become more powerful, then you have to risk. And that means doing something that maybe you've never done before, or doing something that's not entirely predictable or controllable and taking a chance. And, of course, that brings up fear. What if it doesn't work? What if this is the wrong choice? What if I can't do it? Blah, blah, blah. You know, all those things that are subconscious voice, the voice of the ego, you know, keeps coming up with. And... um, The power comes from taking the chance. Now, sometimes we take a chance and it doesn't work out. If it doesn't work out, we learn something. So there's power in that. If it does work out, then we learn something different. And there's power in that. So there's always going to be an accumulation of power if we take a risk and if we go out of our comfort zone, no matter what, we're going to increase in power, even if we fail. But if you just don't do anything and you just stay in your little zone and um, in your security, you know, little perch, then you're not going to accumulate any power. And if we look in nature, we see that nothing stays static. Trees are always growing. They're always seeking the light. Flowers are doing the same thing. Um, Everything is seeking its destination. Things may temporarily slow down and plateau a little bit, but then they're often moving again. That's the way of nature. So nature applies to us, too. So that's the, you know, everything in nature is seeking its fulfillment, a tree wants to grow from a seed to a full-grown tree. That's its destiny. That's what it wants to achieve. And there it goes. We're no different. Now, Jose, I can't end our conversation without asking you to tell our listeners a story that you tell at the beginning of Encounters with Power that I'll just say blew my mind And it's the story in which you encounter an Indian astrologer who (laughs) tells you certain things about your destiny, if you will, and then how that turned out. So please, as you say in the beginning of the book, your students always say to you, tell us a story. Tell us this story, Jose. (laughs) Okay, it's a a complex story and it has different parts, so I'm going to I'm going to sort of, um, you know, make it briefer. 
Um, this story uh, takes me back to when I was uh, in my 20s, um, and I was, uh, I was a young man at the time, and um, I, uh, I was working in a, a psychiatric hospital, a state mental hospital, as a social worker at the time, and it was, uh, I was working on a locked ward. It was pretty difficult. And I decided uh, that I was going to uh, – I'd done enough there, and I learned what I wanted to learn, and I quit. And I was going to go on a grand adventure, and I always wanted to go to India. And so I booked a flight to India and um, put all my stuff in storage and, uh, you know, got ready to – travel for I didn't I didn't have a plan. I didn't know how long it was going to be, but I knew it was going to be months long traveling alone because uh you know, it seemed to me easier to travel alone because I could do whatever I wanted and take as long as I wanted. So off I went to India. And I had um a letter of introduction from a psychiatrist that I had worked with in the state mental hospital who had a, a colleague who worked in the uh, University of um, uh, Benares, uh, Benares Hindu University, and he was also a psychiatrist. And he was the only name I had in all of India. And so relatively soon after I arrived in India, I made my way to Benares, um, also known as Varanasi, which is a very holy city in India by the shores of the Ganges River. And I looked him up. And I went to Benares Hindu University, and I looked him up, and I, I told him who I was, and I showed him the letter. And he says, oh, yes. And, of course, he knew his friend had sent me. And so he was very gracious. Dr. Shukla was his name, and he was very gracious, and he... Um, he agreed to spend some time with me, and I went and visited him every day, and he taught me so many things. He was, he was a wonderful philosopher and teacher, and he just spent the days with me just being like my private tutor. And he said, um, I have a, a guru that's been a very big part of my life, and he's just a powerful man. His, his father was our guru, and then when he passed away, his son became our guru, and he's our guru now, and I can introduce you to him. You'd like to meet him, maybe. I said, oh, of course, sure. I was in for adventure, so I thought that was really cool. So an arrangement was made, and I I met the, the guru, and I thought I would meet an old man in a loincloth, and, and he was in a three-piece suit with leather shoes, and he was uh, not at all what I expected. And uh, he didn't speak English, so we used a translator, and he said, uh, I'm, a, I'm an astrologer, and I'm a palmist, and I read people, and so uh, would you like me to, to give you a reading? I said, wonderful, let's go. So he looked at my palms, and I told him my date of birth, and blah, 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 and he worked that out. And in a relatively short time, he, he said, okay, this is the story of your life. Now, I wasn't expecting this. He was spot on. He knew everything about me. He was able to tell me exactly what had happened in my life up until that point. But he didn't stop there. 
He continued on, and he started talking about my future. He talked about the year that I would get married and who, what kind of a person I would, I would marry. And he also told me when my children would be born and in, in, I would, that I would have a daughter born first and a son born next. And he told me exactly what years they would be born in. This was starting to get scary. And then he went on to tell me many, many things about the life, my future life. And he told me some things that really frightened me. And really, I didn't want to know. Freaked me out, actually. And then at the very end, he said, um, well, the translator said, uh, well, he didn't really want me to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you what he said. He said that you're going to die from uh, from falling from a very high place. And uh, he told me a couple of other things, too. But that completely freaked me out, and I was so upset. I couldn't wait to get out of there. I was really destabilized, and frankly, I was probably the closest I've ever come to having what people call an emotional breakdown. I was alone. I had nobody to talk to. I had no support system. I was alone in India traveling, and I had this laid on me. And so I, I you know, and he said, in the next few days, you're going to meet a very, very powerful person who will change your life. And I said, damn it, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen so that the rest of it doesn't happen either. I'm going to get my freedom back. So I decided I would go travel across India, go to another city, and hole up for a few days and just wait it out so that wasn't going to happen. And I traveled down to Pondicherry, and it was a beach town, and I went for a walk, and I ended up in this ashram, and I saw they had some books, and so I bought some books. There were books in English, and so I went back to my little hotel room, and I read those books, and they changed my life. And I realized, my God, I met the guy, but I thought he was going to be a, a living person, and it turns out to be the author of these books. So then I was really, really worried. So I did my best for years. I, I continued to travel in India and Nepal for months. Eventually I came home. I won't go into that part of the story. Eventually I came home and I tried for years to forget this. And I did a pretty good job of forgetting it. Meanwhile, I got married to my wife, Lena, who was very similar to the person he described. My children were born exactly when he said they would be born and in that order. So many things were exactly what he predicted. But a few things were slightly different. As the years went on, I started to notice a divergence between my life's events and what he had predicted. So I thought, aha, so I do have choice here. So this was all about, is my life predestined or do I have freedom and can I choose? And this was a huge philosophical question for me that I was struggling with for many decades. But I did do a good job of suppressing the information until one day I was developing a course with a friend of mine and we were going to do a leadership course and we were going to do some skydiving as a as part of it and we were going to do some uh, ropes courses and 
you know, it was one of those like ropes leadership course type things. And uh, we were all planning it out. And I had a friend, Jan, who was a skydiver. And, and she said, look, you know, we can't do this course unless you uh, go skydiving with me because I've done your courses. And, you know, we've all done our, each other's courses, except you haven't gone skydiving with me. So we, we have to do that. And I said, oh, God, yeah, you're right. And so I agreed to do it. By this time, I'd sort of, you know, had forgotten this event, this prediction. So it so happened that a friend of mine from uh, Peru, who is a, um, a ceremonialist shaman, was in town. And he invited me to a ceremony. And it was uh, an ayahuasca ceremony. And so I... I did that, and in the course of that ceremony, I had a strong vision, and I envisioned myself in in a few days' time jumping out of the plane with my friend Jan, and we went down, and she pulled the chute, and the chute didn't open, and then she pulled the reserve chute, and the reserve chute didn't open, and we both crashed into the ground and that was the end of both of us we were we were both killed and i had this enormous uh fear reaction i started breathing really heavily i broke out into a sweat i was terrified and it was hard for me to shake it off and i had another vision that uh showed me how important it was for me to be present because my children were young and it was really important for me to stay, to, to be safe and to stay alive to raise my children. And so I realized I was going to have to cancel this skydiving appointment I had with my friend. And I tried to reach her on the phone the next day and I couldn't reach her. So I left a message saying, I have to cancel the appointment. I'll talk to you soon. Put somebody else in my place. It's okay. Um, but, you know, cancel it. So she uh, did cancel it, and she replaced me with somebody else, another student. And uh, a couple days later, um, my daughter Anna came out of the house, and I was working in the backyard, and she said, so her face was white, and she said, Dad, I have something terrible to tell you. And she said, it's Jan. She's dead. And I was, I just said, what? And she said, she died skydiving. I ran into the house and Lena was there and she told me that, you know, she, she had taken this other person and they had, you know, the main chute didn't open and the reserve chute didn't open and, and they had both been killed because they just went all the way down the ground and that there was really nothing left of them. And uh, I was in total shock. It was one of the most destabilizing moments that I've ever had. And uh, I really struggled. It was a extremely difficult experience. I felt like maybe if I had just gotten hold of her and I told her about this vision that I had. Maybe she wouldn't have gone, and I felt responsible. And there were many, many feelings that I had, and I was relieved to be alive, but I was so horrified that she had died and this other person had died. And 
and I had to come to terms with all that. And I, I talked to many of my friends, and I got some help around that, and, uh, you know, um, that was helpful. And um, uh, I, th- th- this, this prediction in India came full force. I remembered it absolutely as if it were yesterday. And I saw that it was a close call with death and that the, the guru had correctly seen the strong probability that I could die that way. And yet I didn't. I managed to avoid it at the last moment. And therefore, I showed myself the lesson was that I did have choice and that nothing is set in stone and that it's not, you know, everything is not destined. And it's, it's another kind of a way of looking at this business of parallels that we were talking about earlier, that there's other parallels that are close but not the same. They don't have the same outcome. There may be a slight difference. And I had moved from one parallel to another parallel by my own choice where the outcome was different. And now it's been many years since that event. And, of course, in this parallel, I'm living much longer. And I'm so glad. And I've had so many opportunities and to, to learn things and experience things that I wouldn't have if I had gone that route. But that was one of the biggest lessons of my life. And it showed me the power of choice. And it showed me the power of intention and the power of having uh, resources. So that's a shortened version. Yeah, it's such an incredible story. Also, for me, what it underscores is the value of visionary experience that you had so much information a few days before this event happened and that you listened to it. And also how this Indian astrologer could possibly see the future like that. I mean, that's in and of itself kind of crumbles our uh, view <laughs> of how solid things are. Uh, absolutely. He, he, was, he was able to see the probabilities. And he went with the probability that they would do me in. But but he was a little bit wrong about that. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> and yes, um, uh, it's it, it's uh, you know we're not used to thinking this way. That that event absolutely changed my outlook about the nature of reality, and uh, it's never been the same. And it liberated me. It actually freed me up of uh, some narrower thinking that was holding me hostage. And um, I'm very grateful for that. Jose, I just have one final question for you. A couple times in this conversation, you've mentioned this idea of a bid for power. And What I'd like to end on this note is, let's say somebody's listening and they're having the experience, you know, it's time for me in my life to make a bid for power. I'm ready to step up in some way. 
And I don't want this to come from hubris. I don't want this to come from, you know, something about me, but I want to be more of service and better used, especially during this time when it's so needed. What's your advice to somebody who's on this precipice, if you will, of bidding for more power? Okay, very good question. Um, First of all, you have to look and see, am I ready for this bid for power? Am I ready physically for the demands it's going to place on me? Am I ready spiritually? Am I ready emotionally? In other words, am I ready in every area, psychologically? If I can answer yes to that question, like, yes, I believe I am ready, then it's appropriate to step forward and make that bid for power. But if I can't answer yes, if I'm maybe having some physical problems and I'm not healthy enough to take on this huge new responsibility, I, I better get my health in order first. In other words, the answer might be, no, I'm not ready for this bid for power, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prepare myself more. So it's very important to be honest. And so many people make a bid for power without asking those questions. And they just, they do it out of hubris. They do it out of arrogance. And you know what happens. They fall flat on their face, and they learn a really hard lesson. Next time, be ready. Mm -hmm. Good advice. I've been talking to Jose Luis Stevens. He's the author of a new book with Sounds True called Encounters with Power, Adventures and Misadventures on the Shamanic Path of Healing, a book that contains tremendous storytelling and wisdom. Jose Luis Stevens is also a teacher in an ongoing online community called A Year of Ceremony, where people from all over the world gather on the full moon each month to participate in a ceremony for both personal and collective healing. And in our upcoming Year of Ceremony, Jose will be joined by his wife, Lena, and they'll be offering a ceremony for transition releasing our past and dreaming our global future. You can find out more about that at soundstrue.com. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.